probably my favorite story ever was a little girl who was struggling with having to get hearing aids, and she was very afraid of it all. And so she found my book and read it, and that helped her be less afraid. And she was at the audiologist's office, and at that point she was very comfortable and okay with everything she was going through. But there was a little boy at the office who was crying, and she happened to have her copy of El Nefo, and she gave him her copy. And that was just, that really got me. So it was just neat. It's neat that it's being used in a helpful way. And I never thought that I would ever create a book that would help people. Hi, I'm graphic novelist Jared J. Krasowska, and welcome to Origin Stories. In this podcast, I go on a deep dive into the upbringings and artistic developments of some of the very brightest and most talented graphic novelists working today. In this episode, we're going to get to know how C.C. Bell became C.C. Bell. I cannot overstate how important her graphic memoir, El Defo, is. Important to humanity in helping us understand what her experience has been as a deaf person, and also what El Defo has meant to the history of graphic novels. It elevated the art form when it earned a Newbery honor. The very first time a graphic novel ever got that kind of literary attention from the American Library Association. I'm talking that iconic silver sticker that we all remember seeing at the school library as a sign that this was a piece of high art in the library. I have known Cece for a while, and yet when I sat down with her today, I learned about so many things that I never knew about her. Yeah, it might sound crazy, but it ain't no lie. Origin Stories with JJK. Jarrett Krasoska. Before we get into my conversation with Cece, Origin Stories is sponsored in part by High Five Books, a beautiful and incredible indie bookshop here in my hometown of Florence, Massachusetts. Check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for links to buy CC's books from this fabulous indie. And while you're over on the High Five website, check out their curated list of book recommendations. Truly High Five worthy. Okay, on to my chat with CC <laughs> Bell. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jared. It's so nice to see you. Oh, it's nice to see you. You're, I miss you. I haven't seen you in so long. Even before the pandemic, we hadn't run into each other on book tour. It had been a long time. I guess we probably haven't seen each other for four years, maybe? It might be. Know. Yeah, it might be. I always see your silly and goofy posts on Instagram, so I really feel like we, <laughs> we haven't missed a beat because I've been following along. You made a beautiful drawing for your mom on her birthday. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. I, yeah, we have actually been off of Instagram for a little while because I was finding that it was too much of a pull away from my productivity. <laughs> so I'm allowed to look at it every Sunday. Ah. Nothing for the rest of the week. It's hard. <laughs> I feel like if I did that, my thumb would always be like, ah, oh, I need to look <laughs> and scroll and see things. That is some amazing yeah. willpower, CC Bell. So I, we know your story somewhat from your book, El Defo. And as a, a person who's also written a graphic memoir, you decide like what you're gonna put on the page, what doesn't make it to the page. And I've said this to you a bunch and you've heard this a million times, but El Defo is such a powerful book and it's a pillar in graphic novel history because your book was the very first one ever to get a Newbery <laughs> silver sticker. Like that really pushed the whole medium of graphic novels forward. And of course, when you sat down to make that book, that was nowhere near in your head. And we'll get to that. But before we do, I'm interested in how CC Bell became CC Bell, the graphic novelist, the cartoonist, the author. What are your earliest memories of drawing and making and reading comics. Tell us a little bit more about what your house was like growing up in regards to like the creative sources you consumed and created. 
Okay, wow. Let's see. I think I always like drawing and mark making and that kind of thing. And let's see. I do remember when I got very sick in 1975 when I was about four and a half, which is where the book Aldefo starts, that I did a lot of drawing there in the hospital. And my parents think that I drew probably 100 drawings of the same thing over and over again. It was just a little girl with a green face underneath the rainbow. Her body was shaped like a triangle. And I just drew that repeatedly over and over. And that was probably an early experience of drawing being therapy in a way. But I always drew. That was basically the only book that I would check out of my school library every Friday, the same Ed Emberley book, Make a World. And I really wasn't interested in reading that much. I could read. I didn't have trouble with it, but I just wasn't interested. I wanted to be making things. So Ed Emberley was a major part of my life. And gosh, my, my home life, I was really lucky. My father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse and I wasn't limited financially, basically. And it was a very supportive household. But in the book, there's this feeling that, that my parents are fairly normal people and my siblings are fairly normal people. And if I had focused on my family, instead of on just the story of me coping with my deafness in school and at home, it would have been much, much stranger. My family is bonkers weird, and they are very funny. Oh my goodness, they are just so weird. My mom is so weird. My dad is we're just weird. And so I, I tamped that down a lot because the focus wasn't on that. It was on deafness and feeling isolated. So anyway, but my family was, yeah, there was my mom. There was a picture of my mom. Nuts. Very dramatic and funny. And uh, I think I got a lot of my storytelling abilities from my mom's side of the family and wordplay and nicknames and all that stuff comes into play. And then my father's side is very, really talented with hand skills. My grandmother was an amazing seamstress. And my great-grandmother was an amazing seamstress, but she was also a sign painter. I always found that really cool, a sign painter. Wow, I think that's sort of some of the mix of who I was growing up and a huge focus on weird and probably Ed Emberley and the fact that my father got weekly issues of The New Yorker were major influences. The New Yorker cover and then The New Yorker cartoon in the inside. That's a little bit of a little bit of what was going on around me. Okay, so I I want to meet these people who are more cuckoo bananas <laughs> than CC Bell because you are so wonderfully and beautifully goofy and fun and you might be the only person I know who consistently uses the hot dog emoji in text messages. <laughs> so That's I imagine one ever. <laughs> I imagine that must have been yeah, I guess that makes such sense. What may I ask, what did your siblings grow up to do? My siblings, they struggled more than I did in terms of this is gonna sound strange, but in a lot of ways my hearing loss ended up being a real gift. And the main way that it did that is I ended up getting attention from our parents that more attention from our parents than my older siblings did, which was extremely unfair, but that's just how it happened, how it played out. And so they really struggled. They struggled with that lack of attention and just their, my sister is five years older and my brother is seven years older. And their growing up was very different from mine. Even that slight, not generational, but time period was different. And so they, they are probably the funniest, most creative people I know, but neither one of them has found that, that lifelong dream career. 
which is something I struggle with in that sense of guilt, even though what happened wasn't my fault. I'm deeply aware of how much it changed things for them. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but they are so funny. If you think I'm funny, spend time with them, and you'll just think that I'm as dull as a brick. Because those, and when we all three get together, it is just, it's pretty magical. And I'm so grateful that we get along and that we're as close as we are. They're terrific siblings. Yeah. Wow. What a, that is a, oh, what a beautiful testament of your love for them. And their love for you comes across so clearly in the book in regards to you, you the baby of the family and, and their concern for your health. That's, and I connect to that as well because I too was the baby of the family and there was a lot of trauma going on and with that I got a lot of attention and I loved drawing as a form of escape and I'm so touched to hear that your time in the hospital was spent drawing because that is a testament to the power of creating in the arts to get you through some hard times did you ever have an epiphany along the lines where you realized this thing could be a career for you like this strong thing? That took a while. I was in school, in high school, in the first part of college. I was really super academic. And uh, some of that was pressure from my own self, but also pressure from my dad. I think my dad wanted me to be a doctor like him. And I have found that the theme among a lot of cartoonists and illustrators, that there was this parent who pushed but pushed them to be something that they didn't want to be. And that child, and, and like me in my case, I think Dan Santat has a similar thing. And his name is leaving me American born Chinese. Oh, Jing Help Yang. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, just that, that pressure. And there's that. But in school, I was really academic, trying to fulfill this thing for myself and for my father and overcompensating for the deafness. I didn't want people to think of me as that deaf kid. I wanted them to think of me that smart kid. And so I worked really hard. And I never considered art as a career because it didn't seem like it was even doable. It wasn't doable. So when I got to college, I was an English major. And I hated it. I hated it. I don't know what I was doing, having to write papers and read books. <laughs> and, but while I was in college, I met Tom Engelberger, who ended up becoming my husband. And he was an art major. And I did take some art classes. There he is. There he is. He's so smart. And uh, we started hanging out. And I think he recognized that I was pretty good at it. And I think he also recognized that I was unhappy as an English major. And so it was Tom who encouraged me to switch majors and just go for it. And I did. And suddenly I was happy. And it was the best move I ever made. But it took a while longer to figure out what I was going to do with it. Wow. You know, I, I obviously I know that you and Tom really support what I one another artistically, but I didn't realize he was really such an integral part of your origin story of you becoming the CC Bell that we all know, that we know is the name on the spine of the book, the name on the front cover with all of those shiny stickers. And yeah, and so you were college sweethearts and then you both got <laughs> catapulted out into the real world. And so what happened from there? Did you graduate with an English degree? We, no. <laughs> no, I got out of that as quick as I could. I keep saying I don't like reading and I do, but the book has to get me or it has to interest me from chapter one. And if it doesn't, I throw it out. So there were a lot of books that didn't interest me in chapter one in the English department. I was out of there. But no, we I ended up getting a degree in fine arts, and Tom did too. And we went to the College of William and Mary, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia, and which isn't really known for art. <laughs> it's known for like business and physics and science. But 
We finished school and then we took a trip around the country together in an old Volkswagen van. And then we decided, because we survived, that we could get married and survive that too. So we got married and I decided to go to graduate school at, in Ohio. And so we got married right before that. And so at this point, we were just 22. We were super, super young. And I decided I needed to, I wanted to become an illustrator that I wouldn't have fit in with the whole fine arts crowd. I had this vision that I would have to go to New York City and drink champagne and talk about art, and that just sounded atrocious. So I thought illustration, and so I decided to get a graduate degree in design and illustration, and Tom went with me, and basically he worked in a factory and juggled on the weekends and that and he paid for all of the time I was in graduate school and then and then I finished and then we moved back to Virginia. He learned a lot from what I was learning so it was neat. I would share my projects with him and talk about everything with him and I think he's picked it up through osmosis but he actually his path was really different. He was working in a factory but then eventually ended up becoming a newspaper reporter, both in Ohio and then back in Virginia, and he was really good at it. And I think that's how he became a writer, was just newspaper writing. And his first book, which was about a group of kids exploring the local sewage department, that was based on a story that he wrote for the newspaper. Anyway, he's a huge, Tom Engelberger is probably the reason I'm talking to you right now is because he put me through school. He was the one that I think he understood me before I understood me in a lot of ways. Wow. 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 I, that's beautiful. I feel like that story you just told us could be like a limited series on a streaming service. That is just such a beautiful, that could be a romantic comedy or something, Cece. That's amazing. Wow. So you landed back in Virginia. You got hitched. Mm -hmm. You got hitched. And smart to travel cross country together to see if you could survive that. Your relationship could survive that before <laughs> marriage. That's smart. That should be a requirement. So, <laughs> what, so he was writing for the newspaper. And were you... Like, what were you hoping to do with your illustrations? Did you have books for kids in mind? Did you, like, what were you thinking? Gosh, when we moved back to Virginia, I was, we were both 25. And we moved back mostly because Tom was homesick for the mountains. I would have stayed in Ohio. And I actually applied for a job at American Greeting, which was, or I think it's still in Cleveland, and did not get that job. What were they thinking? But I didn't get hired by American Greetings, and I was bummed because it was an oh, that uh, the office space was just beautiful, and the employees would get these like every other year sabbaticals, and it was beautiful. So I was pretty sad. But Tom wanted to go back to Virginia, and I did, and so we did. And when we first came back, Tom had trouble finding a newspaper job. But I got a job as an illustrator and designer for a small company that made exotic pet supplies. <laughs> so for three years, I was making packaging and writing copy and doing all this stuff for this little company in Virginia. And the work was really great because it forced me to learn how to use Photoshop and at the time it was called freehand, like Illustrator. You may remember freehand. Yeah. And it forced me to learn to use the computer. I, my time in graduate school, the computer stuff was just starting. It was more, we were using a Xerox machine and cutting and pasting and using all that old ruby list kind of stuff. So the computer was still really new. So that job was good because it forced me to learn those things, but I was working for the devil. Satan himself was my boss, and I had to get out of there. And so I don't know if you've ever seen the show The Prisoner, 
the, it's that British show, and the beginning, the introduction has the prisoner is an FBI, not FBI, Secret Service agent, and he, he quits his job and he like throws his keys down and storms out. I had visions that, that that was how I was going to quit, but instead I got up like at 5.30 in the morning and I wrote a note and I put it in an envelope with the key and I crept into my boss's office and put the envelope on his desk and it basically said, I quit and don't contact me ever. And then I snuck out and I was at no two weeks notice. Oh, I was pretty shabby, but I was so glad to get out of there. And then from that, I started freelancing at this crazy local paper, paper product place that licensed stuff. Like I got to make folders that featured NSYNC and the, whatever those boys are called, those boy bands. <laughs> yes, I wanted that way. And I got to make all these school supplies for NSYNC and with the Crayola stuff on there. And it was this crazy hodgepodge. It was the best job. And so when I was doing that, it freed me up to start thinking about kids' books. And my graduate thesis had been this wackadoodle children's book that will never see the light of day. But the illustrations are great. The story's not so good. But I thought the illustrations were great. But anyway, so then I started to think maybe I can do this. And I finally had an idea that I felt like it was good enough to pursue. And I pursued it and I made this really polished dummy that I could, that I could send out. And at the time, Candlewick Press was accepting accepting work without an agent, unsolicited stuff. So I sent it to Candlewick, and like three months later, there was a message on the answering machine, which of course I didn't understand because I don't understand <laughs> I don't understand answering machine messages. But Tom was there once again, Tom to the rescue, and he's oh my gosh, it's Candlewick Press, and so I didn't I that was it that was my end. And the rest is history. And what book was that? That book was Soft Monkey Goes to Hollywood. Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember the Soft Monkey books. And wow, that's right. Wow. So what and what year was that? Oh, my gosh. That came out. Oh, yeah. So the, that was the year 2000 was when I got the message from Candlewick. But it didn't come out until 2003 because I didn't have an agent. And I had to get a lawyer to help me read the contract as those contracts or it wasn't until later that I got an agent and God bless agents because I never want to read another contract ever again. But it just took a long time because it was my first and I didn't have representation at the time. So that came out in 2003. Yeah. 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 And and because now I'm connecting all of the dots because then maybe a few years after that is when I first met you and Tom at we were in a gallery show together and I had just thought that's the famous Cece Bell she's been around these books have been out for years now and I don't know if I'm allowed to talk to the famous Cece Bell who makes the sock monkey books and there you were just getting started yeah oh I really was just getting started and I wasn't famous at all I remember Ashley Bryan was there and Grace Lynn was there. And at the time, I was a huge Grace Lynn fan, still am. But I think I still think of her as the icon. She already felt iconic all the way back then. And I was so in awe of her. And that sensation that I had then, it's still there. Anytime I see her, I just turn to jelly. Like, oh, it's Grace Lynn, Bob. And so she was there, and I remember the book that you were talking about was the, the Animal Punk Rock Band yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah, Punk Farm. You, you already had the JJK thing going on. You were like Mr. PR. And, no, and but I, I was only a few years in then, too. That, yeah. I, I, my first book was 2001, and Punk Farm was 2005, I think. Punk Farm. Still trying to get my stuff out there. and learning how to be on stage because I used to have incredible stage fright. I hated performing. I hated going on stage. And then that became part of the job that I have. So I'm curious and because I know for me, I had been working on Lunch Lady that whole time. 
but the world wasn't quite ready for kids graphic novels. So you're plugging away on these picture books. How does El Defo thread into that? I'm assuming that was something that was knocking around your head for so for some years, right? It, in fact, it was not knocking around my head at all. And wow. honestly, I was purposefully not writing about my experience on purpose. And it's much like how I was in school. I don't want anybody to know this thing about me. And I want everybody to think I'm smart. And I had the same feeling about my picture books and early reader books. I just wasn't ready to talk about it in any way, not just in books, but in any and every way. There was an event that happened in which I had this really difficult interaction with a grocery store cashier and she made me feel like the lowest person on earth and it was all because I couldn't understand her and I was so upset by that interaction and the person I was most upset at was myself because at no point during that interaction did I ever say, I'm deaf, or I have trouble hearing, or could you please repeat that? Because I had so much trouble saying those things. I still had not come to grips with a lot of it. And at that point, I was 40 years old, <laughs> 40. And I was so mad at everything and I was mad at hearing people for not understanding and just frustrated and mad at me. And so I started a website and the website was called eldefo.com. And Eldefo really was the nickname that I called myself as a kid, but only to myself. Nobody else knew about it. And I just started writing about it and my posts were more about more directed at hearing people like, this is what you should do if you're talking to a lip reader, that kind of thing. But then I wrote a little, my, my origin story. I wrote that up and a friend of mine who was a wonderful writer named Madeline Rosenberg, she was reading it and she said, oh my goodness, you have got to turn this into something. Please turn this into something. Please turn it into a graphic novel. And so we have Madeline Rosenberg to thank for this. And so it was her encouragement and I had just read Raina Telgemeier's Smile and that thing's a masterpiece. And I could see, I could tell that Raina's methods would really work for a story like this. And I was really excited about it because from the word go, I knew that they were going to be rabbits and I knew that the speech bubbles were going to be the most important part of telling the story of my experience with deafness. So that's how that all came to me. And I was ready, I was ready. I felt like this yeah. book is going to be my calling card. This book is going to tell the world for me that I'm deaf. And then sure enough, after the book came out, I was finally able to talk about it. It was like, it worked. If you're enjoying my chat with CC Bell and want to see the conversation, which includes visuals of the books we reference, check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories. I recorded this talk via Switcher Studio. Switcher Studio is a simple and powerful iOS app that makes your live video feeds look like a professionally produced piece. Your iPad becomes like the production control room as you switch between your iPhone camera, which acts like a webcam, your remote guests, and any pre-recorded video or visuals you want to bring up on the screen. I'd like to thank Switcher Studio for sponsoring this podcast, and as a thank you to you for listening, you may use code STUDIOJJK at switcherstudio.com to receive a free month of the service. Yeah. And it was such a relief. And, I, and again, I can understand that journey. So earlier when I was talking about I, I was making lunch lady i probably should have compared it more to hey kiddo in that for me too when i was first getting published and news reporters would want to ask would they ask why were you being raised by your grandparents and i thought i don't want that to be i don't want to be labeled as the child of an addict i want to be the jared who's right. making the books and i want to be the punk farm guy or the lunch lady guy and but then there's this thing that you've lived and you're processing it 
and it's trauma and you're an adult but you're still dealing with it and then suddenly this thing that you've wanted to put inside a box your whole life you're gonna put in a graphic <laughs> memoir like a hundreds of pages for everyone to see what was the creative process like for you and i love that you made them rabbits that's it's so perfect because of the ears but also because you're cc bell <laughs> it's just so silly like they could have been talking hot dogs and it still would have worked but could you tell us a little bit about the creative process and how that intersected with the emotional journey you had wow i was when i decided to commit to it I was really excited about it. And I think because I didn't have any experience with graphic novels, I knew that I had to do a little bit of studying up. And probably like a lot of folks who are in this business, I started with Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which is probably the most important book about comics I've ever seen. And I read it three times. I was just amazed by the whole thing. I read it three times and once I, after the third time, I thought to myself, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. And the process was just, I basically did a, a notebook dump. I just wrote down everything I could remember, but I limited myself to the moment that I lost my hearing to fifth grade. And I just wrote all my memories down, all my experiences, and then tighten that up into an outline. And it was the outline and a, a chapter. I drew out a chapter. And that's what I sent to Susan Mann Meter at Abrams Books. She was at Abrams at the time. And she was Tom's editor for the Origami Yoda series. And I was really impressed with her. I had met her a couple of times and something told me she was the right person for it. That's what I sent to her. But the process was just a lot of back and forth between doing just these little sketches for each page, kind of blocking out what's supposed to happen, and then writing out what people are supposed to say, and then just mushing it together. And the process felt very organic compared to picture books. The picture books I always feel like you've got to get the text absolutely perfect. And there was a lot less of that for me with the graphic novel. It was so much looser and more fun, I think. And that's all I can, that's all I can say. It was just, it was a really good experience. That's, and that, that book is such a gift. I still have the advanced reader's copy that they handed out to promote the book. I'll never, that's maybe in 50 years, I'll sell it on eBay to get me through. <laughs> but I think it's only, with the medium of comics, like a prose novel would not have worked to tell the story as effectively because with your visuals, you were able to play with the word balloons and the size of the text to really help me and hearing people understand your journey. And, and that obviously that's a help to us with hearing, but for the whole generation of, of kids who are growing up with hearing loss and who are deaf have you that i can't even imagine what this book has meant to them and i'm assuming you hear from readers with hearing loss and deafness could you share a few stories like that must get emotionally overwhelming at times sure there has been the response was just so positive the kids that i've heard from who have had experiences like mine they just get so excited to see their story and to see something that's familiar to them. It's not exactly their story maybe, but they get it and they're really happy to have something to show their families and their friends. This is what it's like. And um, also just a lot of kids have had the experience of hearing their teacher in the bathroom and it's great to have that validated. Yes, I've been there too. Yay. That's probably everybody's favorite part in the book. That's my favorite part in the book. That was the chapter that I submitted to Susan. That yeah, <laughs> hearing teacher. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. So the kids have been great. and But somehow the more affecting stories for me were the adults had grown up 
in a very similar way that I had with the same equipment, even the phonic ear and the microphone. And many of them said, this is the first time I have ever seen anything remotely like my story in a book. And I ended up making friends with a lot of adults with hearing loss, which wasn't something I had a lot of. I'm very much in the hearing world because my family is all hearing. And I think for so long, I thought of myself as a hearing person. Am I'm a hearing person when I stick my hearing aids in and I'm a deaf person when they're out. But I'm both of those things all the time. I'm in between all the time. And so it was just really cool to get this new group of people who completely understood and just those are the ones that get me. But then in terms of the kids, probably my favorite story ever was a little girl who was struggling with having to get hearing aids and she was very afraid of it all. And so she found my book and read it and that helped her be less afraid. And she was at the audiologist's office and at that point she was very comfortable and okay with everything she was going through. But there was a little boy at the office who was crying and she happened to have her copy of El Nefo and she gave him her copy. Oh, and that was just, oh, that really got me. So wow. it was just neat. It's neat that it's being used in a helpful way. And I never thought that I would ever create a book that would help people. My other books that are just silly and funny and goofy. Sometimes I feel guilty for those books. I'm like, well, sure, maybe they help kids read, but what good are they doing? So it's really nice to have this one book that I know helps people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's something that I struggle to, especially when we're seeing every awful, horrific headline in the news. And there have been times where I've worried about, what does this silly story matter? But they do. Those silly stories do matter. I understand, I understand the inner struggle because you have made something that connects with readers on this whole other level. So I'm curious, I'd like to know a little bit more about this Apple TV limited series of El Defo. It, my kids requested to watch it because they had read the book and what you did with the visuals in El Defo, the book to help hearing people understand your deaf experience the soundscape in the tv show helped me understand on a, an entirely different level and it i had to say cc it it felt like a animated special we've had for decades it felt like a charles Schultz peanuts charlie brown snoopy special like it was that <laughs> level of just beauty and taking the time to tell the story. How did that come about? Wow, Jared, you just said the magic words to me. That was what I wanted. I wanted that Peanuts feel, that Christmas yeah. special Peanuts feel, yeah. where it's not exactly perfect, but the imperfections are what make it interesting. There's something really unusual about that Charlie Brown Christmas special that on paper, it shouldn't work at all. It's a mess. Even some of the story doesn't make sense. And yet you stick it all together and yay, it works. But so thank you for that. That means a lot. So that television show came about. A, he's my friend now, but back then he wasn't my friend. He was somebody I greatly admired and still admire. Will McRobb, who is one of the co-creators of one of my favorite TV shows of all time, The Adventures of Pete and Pete which was on Nickelodeon in the 90s, he, out of the blue, sent me an email and said, I like your book. <laughs> Let's turn it into a show. And so that was how it got started. But it took him a long time to convince me because I felt like the book was, I don't know, to me at least, it, it felt sacred. And I didn't want to mess that up. And I knew that there were a lot of fans of the book who also felt that love for it. And I didn't want to mess that up. But I started to think there's not many, if any, characters on TV who are like me in that we are deaf people who have chosen 
or because of our circumstances, we have gotten through life with hearing aids, not without, but with. And you don't see very much of that on TV and in the movies. And in fact, when there are deaf characters in movies, at least like back in the 70s and 80s when we grew up, not only was the deaf character made fun of, but the equipment was too. The actual hearing aid was somehow part of the, it was being made fun of. And hearing aids are not perfect and they're greatly flawed little things, but they've really helped me. And the phonic ear from the book, I mean, once again, I would not be here talking to you without that piece of equipment. I don't think, maybe I would have, but I don't think so. But anyway, I just started to think this kind of needs to be, this could be really good for deaf kids and hearing kids to have a show like this. So that's how it came about. And I signed on once. Uh, I was very demanding. I had to put on those big girl pants and be like, ah, which is not my usual way. But anyway, I said, it can't be just a series that goes on off, goes off on its own. It needs to be based on the book and I want it to look like the book and it can't be 3D animation. I was like, absolutely no 3D, has to be 2D. And my other thing was, we have to mess with the audio. The audio has to reflect the book in some way. So those were some of my demands. Also, the main character had to be played by someone, a kid, who also has hearing loss, but is using adaptive equipment to help her. And in that case, we got a lovely young lady, Lexi Finnegan, who uses cochlear implants. A little bit different from what I do, but she was just fantastic. So I was very demanding. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you were because so often these animated adaptations of work, the author of the underlying material is the last person they want to work with. And right. I think that the work suffers from that because it's so it, really you went in there with a limited amount of things that would really like your quote unquote demands. And I, and I get it because you have to be assertive in these situations to say, here's what's really important to me. And understanding that a book is a book and a, a TV show is a TV show. Like you're telling story with anything that's a, animated or film, you're telling stories with visuals and sounds and time, which is different than a book. And you all just hit it right out of the park. I, when it comes to the Emmys, I hope you win all of the awards for this piece. It's an instant classic. It's just so perfect. And you never couldn't, I didn't know that. So I put it on and, I, and my wife Gina was in the other room. She came up, is that Cece? Cece's voice is coming from the TV? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty neat. At first, the director, who is from Lighthouse Studios in Ireland, a woman named Julie Fogg, who was absolutely terrific. When she first heard that I wanted to narrate it, oh, not that I wanted to narrate it, but just the idea of a narrator, she said, oh no, we don't want that. That's no thank you. But Will and I, when we were writing the script together, we realized that if we were going to mess with the audio, that it was going to be confusing and that we needed there to be a voice kind of just explaining, giving kids a few clues that, no, your TV isn't broken because the narrator's voice would come on and it would be clear and, and like, I think every now and then the narrator says something like, everything was quiet. And I think the audience needs that. Otherwise, they're going to be hitting their TV. What's wrong? She did not like that idea. The director said, no, no narrator. And so Will said, what if Cece narrates it? And then she just lit up and she said, aha, yes, that's what we need to do. Because it did need to be my voice. You've probably heard people talking about the deaf accent where there are certain sounds that I don't hear very well. And so my voice is a little different. And that was important. People need to hear what that voice sounds like, which is why one of the reasons why we cast a deaf actress, because we need to have that specific sound. And I used to be very ashamed of that deaf accent, but not anymore. I don't really. That's just how I talk. So that is how that came to be. But I had to take acting classes, Jared. I am now 
I'm Thespian. <laughs> and the woman, I know, I am acting. And it was fantastic. I think I had about three or four sessions with her. And it was almost more like therapy. <laughs> I don't know. She was magical. And she's a lovely woman. And just, it, it actually really helped. Just, it was more about here's how to take direction and then use that direction and, and go with it. And this all happened during COVID. And so I recorded all of my lines in my bedroom. They sent me all this equipment and Tom and I set it up. And I was pretty much in my closet. And that, it was pretty neat. It was pretty neat getting to do the whole thing from home. You, but okay, but you do deserve the limo that's going to bring you to the studio. So I hope that we get something more so that you can have a personal assistant that you throw your phone to. And if you don't like the food they prepared, you just throw it against the wall in a fit of rage. I guess you could do that for Tom. I guess you could, like, Tom could, he would do that for you if that's going to make you happy. Like, he would totally be game for that. It was frustrating that I didn't get to have some of the experiences. Like, I was supposed to be able to go to Ireland and hang out with the animation studio for a couple of weeks. Wow. So that got canned. And I was supposed to go out to LA to, to work with the audio team. That didn't work. But the funny thing is that because we had all of our meetings on Zoom, it was actually better because when I'm in a meeting, or like around a table in real life, I miss probably 70 or 80% of what's being said because I lose the thread, if that makes sense. I can't, mm -hmm. I can only do one or two people and then I'm lost because of the lip reading. But with everybody's face right in front of me, everybody's facing me, look at me, they're all <laughs> facing me. <laughs> that makes me sound like they're looking at me. We have to look <laughs> at our computers, right? We have to look at our computers when we do Zoom. And so I didn't miss anything. And that gave me a lot more confidence to help run the show. Wow, yeah. So it was actually a benefit in a weird way that we were all stuck at home. As well, you should run the show, Cece. Wow, that <laughs> all of your hard work as a team made for a beautiful animated program. And there's, as I said, it so reminded me of the Charlie Brown specials because it also took its time. There was moments of silence. There there were moments where it wasn't just a lot of fast cuts. And my five-year-old son, who has a very short attention span, loves video <laughs> games. Like it, it actually was very calming to him. We'd watch it at the end of the day as a treat, as a family watch. And he would ask for Cece. He wouldn't call it El Defo. He'd say, could we watch Cece? And so they all uh. connected with you on this whole other level. So we're going to wrap things up in a bit. Before we do, in the chat, so I'll give you one audience question because I don't want to keep you too much longer. What are you working on, Cece? Is there anything you can tell <laughs> us about? What do we have to look forward to? Oh, so I am working on, of all things, an alphabet book. <laughs> That's crazy. But though so I love music and that's something that a lot of hearing folks are surprised by that deaf people can love music. And my hearing aids are pretty good. And I grew up with my older siblings bringing in all this great music, usually from thrift stores. And we had this fantastic turntable that we used at home that is mine now, thank goodness great speakers and so i really love music and i especially love the visuals that went with the music the album covers so this is an alphabet book of fake album covers that are animals playing different genres and and all and making memorabilia and writing songs and smoking it all together in this book so Part of it is hopefully it'll be fun, but it's a very personal project because as I've gotten older, I am losing more hearing. And now it's a genetic hearing loss because my father and his grandfather and father on down the line, they all had pretty significant hearing loss. So I'm starting to lose my ability to appreciate music, which sucks in a big way. 
So this is my, my outpouring of love visually for music. And it's been so much fun. I'm doing all the hand lettering. I'm doing these weird paintings and it's been a lot of fun so far, but a lot of work because it's so personal. I'm taking my time with it. And my editor is Susan Van Meter, the same one who is working, who worked on El Defo with me. And I just got an extension, Jarrett. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> the best thing ever to happen is when you tell your editor, I need more time, and they give it to you. So that's what I'm awesome. Very personal, and I just wanted to do something that didn't have so much of a story, just fun, and there's sort of a story that the story of my own personal relationship with music. But that's what I've been working on. We will be patient, Cece Bell. It has been very <laughs> challenging, challenging times. And deadlines have, lately, because of the pandemic, deadlines have seemed like wonderful suggestions. I know my editors won't want to hear that, but it's been to get that art out of you. You also need to be in a pretty decent enough headspace. So I'm glad to know that yes. you're, you're getting more time and we are going to get more CC Bell and the world. <laughs> and we're also, we're lucky to have you in this world. We're lucky that, that you make art. We're lucky that Tom Engelberger supported you and took you off that track and put you on a different track that you wanted to be on. And what a beautiful thing to have anyone in this world who would love you so much to show you your true self. And what an amazing story from the exotic pet packaging to insect. I did not think... <laughs> I would be able to run a thread between CC Bell and InSync in this interview, but wow, wow, that's very cool. I will think of you whenever I see an InSync lunchbox at a thrift store or something like that. Oh, please, yeah. If you ever find school supplies like a notebook and folders, I should have sent you pictures. They're, they're just, I know everything about Justin Timberlake, let me tell you. I know everything about the way he looks and his signature. We got to use all this stuff that they sent us. It was great. Oh, but Jared, make... I would say a lot of the same things about you. Your oh, work you. has been so important and inspiring and funny. And, uh, and your support of other authors and illustrators is amazing. I think I'm a little bit more self-centered, honestly. You're just like, <laughs> everybody else is fantastic. And I really appreciate that. You're really well, good about doing that. So thank you. I appreciate that, your kind words. But in a way, what we all do is self-centered because we're scratching that creative itch we've always had. And we're lucky enough that we love to make books and we didn't forget who we were as kids and kids find those really funny or entertaining or they get to see themselves reflected in that true life experience. I cannot pass up a chance to make a really bad pun in this moment, Cece. I'm going to sign off by saying bye, bye, bye. It was so bad, right? That was so stupid. That was such a bad joke. <laughs> we'll Ain't see. no lie, Jim. <laughs> Ain't no lie. Bye, I'm gonna say, it, sounds, it, it might sound crazy, but it ain't no lie. Cece, I appreciate you. And thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jared. Again, thank you to my pal Cece Bell for chatting. And thank you for listening. If you're interested in picking up any of CeCe's books and you'd like to order online while supporting a human with a dream, head to studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for a link to High Five Books, a wonderful sponsor of the show. Until next time, I look forward to bringing you the next origin story again. My name is Jared Krasoska. Find me across social media at studiojjk.com.